Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello dear listeners, I'm your host, Najah, and in this podcast we try to shed light on the studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. Today is the final and last episode of this mini-season on the golden age of illustration. And I hope you have enjoyed this journey through these 50 incredibly creative years of the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and this subject of the golden age is incredibly dear to me. So I have had a lot of fun diving into it and researching it, and I'm glad to have been able to share this with you. And now, today's episode will be a conclusion to it all. We'll wrap everything with a tiny, beautiful bow, as we look into how the golden age of illustration shaped the world of art and well beyond the confines of the time period. And so, let's begin, my darlings. The period that we know as the Golden Age of Illustration ended roughly toward the late 1920s, but the artists that were prominent during that era continued to work and draw but their recognition was not as high as it was before. First of all, there were new trends and new illustrators and new artists, from G.C. Leyendecker, who was one of the first to usher a whole new style of illustration that ultimately gave way to the mid-century style. The favorite visual aesthetic in the late 19th century and the Edwardian era was no longer favored. The world has changed and the world of art was extremely different from how it had been previously. After all, the 1920s were the beginning of a whole new medium, starting to get the spotlight above all else. Welcome to Hollywood. And while illustrators were still incredibly important and will always continue to be no matter what people try to do, during the 1920s and the 1930s, the world of visual art was undergoing rapid change. And a lot of artists got new careers in the world of cinema, as concept artists or even as art directors and were being hired by these new, fresh studios who who were starting out in Los Angeles. And during the 1930s, the first steps of animation were also being made. Indeed, it would only be a few years later, during the 1930s, that the first feature-length animation movie was created. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937. 
We talked about Teen Nelson in a previous episode, episode two of this podcast, if I remember correctly. And as I had said, Nelson was one of the most well-known illustrators of the golden age. He is definitely one of the representative artists of the movement of fairy tales illustrations and with good reason. His work stood the test of time and stands on the same level as artists such as Edmond Gillard or Kate Greenaway. The reason why I didn't go deep into Nielsen the other time was because I wanted to leave him for now, because I wanted to talk about that part of his career that involved fairy tales and folklore, but also join into the his later career as an art director for the studio of Disney. So the other time we talked mostly about his black and white work and the formal characteristics of his work, the way his style fit within the influences of the aesthetic movement, and the way Aubrey Bursley art styles, as well as the symbolists, influence his artistic output. But it is finally time to dig more into his body of work, specifically into the role of fairy tales in his work, which would really end up being the emblematic work of his long career. He illustrated several classic fairy tales, starting by his first English commissioned work in the form of Sir Arthur Twiller Couch's volume of readapted classic fairy tales titled In Powder and Crinoline. Okay, let me just <laughs> let me just dash for an instant because how romantic and adorable is this title? It is incredible. And and so are the illustrations. They truly are so marvelous. My two favorite illustrations from this compilation come from the tale of the Twelve Dancing Princesses. One where the Twelve Princesses are walking across the woods in their extremely elaborate dresses. And another one of a princess dancing with a handsome man wearing all black. I think Nielsen has a strong talent in portraying very vivid and highly stylized larger-than-life characters. They don't seem realistic, but they do seem magical and otherworldly. He portrays queens and cursed princes, mysterious adventurers and magical beings. His art is escapist and full of wonder. And it is totally understandable why his art captured the eye of so many. But his really representative work, arguably though, in the series of illustrations he created for East of the Sun, West of the Moon, Old Tales from the Norse. These stories were new to the general English-speaking public as this was where the golden age of illustration was happening. These tales were compiled by a Norwegian duo folklorists who wanted to do the same process as the Brothers Grimm had done to preserve and protect their regional heritage. 
East of the Sun, West of the Moon is one of my favorite tales, and it is one where the princess has a lot of agency in her own story, all the while keeping the very magical and ethereal atmosphere of a fairy tale. I highly recommend reading those northern stories if you do not know them. The illustrations for this compilation are incredibly beautiful and intricate, with a very soft and detailed aesthetic and color palette. It was obviously influenced by the more cubic and geometrical tendencies of the era, aka the late 19-teens and the early 1920s, and his art is sitting somewhat squarely at the junction of the very streamlined trends of the 1920s and the very ornate art of the 1900s. The Tales of the Norse are an example of how there was a desire not only for the fairy tales and folk tales that were familiar, but also to expand with foreign tales that were new and quote-unquote exotic, even if they were still very much a part of the once again, quote-unquote, Western world, they still held that aura of forwardness and newness that was very much appealing to the general public. The movement of the golden age of illustration in itself is one that was fairly contained to the Western world, even though the tales from foreign countries were imported, such as Arabic, African, or Chinese tales, just to name a few, but these were still very much illustrated by Western artists, so even though the traditional stories were told, there wasn't any opportunity given to artists from these cultural backgrounds to illustrate their own stories, but also, you know, it was the late 19th century and we were still thinking that colonialism was like a good thing. So, you know, the further east that the Golden Age went was Russia with Ivan Bilibin. Ivan Bilibin is probably the most well-known and recognized illustrators of the Golden Age of illustration with his beautiful art of the Russian tales, as well as taking part in the design and conception of ballets and operas. His art is magnificent, truly, and even though he is mostly known for his Russian tales illustrations, which are incredibly intricate works of art that blend magic, the supernatural, and traditional Russian motifs, his characters often wear traditional Russian outfits and clothing, and one of the distinct particularities of Billy Bin's work is the amount of patterns and repetitions, as well as the ornaments that frame the art. The frame is so highly worked on that it is almost a work of art in itself. His work is incredibly colorful and vibrant and uses mostly flat washes of color and doesn't hesitate to use extremely saturated color palette. 
With Billy Bean's work, there seems to be a desire to capture the essence of the Russian culture on paper. And this is what Nelson was doing as well with his illustrations for the Northern Stories. T. Nelson was mostly active during the later years of the Golden Age, but he's... And I find it extremely amazing how his art and just generally speaking, each artist of the Golden Age has such an incredibly unique and distinguishable art style, no matter this very similar artistic and historical references and influences. I can always recognize Nelson's art when I see it. And I think it is a mark of his absolute talent. He got hired by the studios of Disney in 1936, mostly to work on a specific sequence in Fantasia. He also created some concept art for Disney for movies such as The Little Mermaid as early as the 1950s. He did not work for the studios for a long time and after the Second World War happened, he did fell a bit on harder times financially because his art was no longer fashionable for the era. The world had moved on. The mid-century aesthetic was painterly, either to the styles of the Pulp Fiction book covers, a la Robert Nutinis, or to the wholesome Americana aesthetic of Norman Rockwell, for example. I just think it is extremely unfortunate how sometimes... Certain art styles and aesthetics fall out of favor. It is sadly how it goes with fashions and trends. And I think even more so before the advent of social media. Where trends were generally more uniform and standardized, I think we're at a time while... I think there's still some general trends, even though I wouldn't be able to tell you what those trends are. But we're not quite as governed by them as we used to be. And while Kane Nielsen's career ended in the shadows, his work is being rediscovered and rethought about in the past years with reprintings of his illustrations and exhibits dedicated to his work. Of course, it is impossible to talk about fairy tales and how they exist both on a visual and cultural aspect in the post-Golden Age era, without talking about the animation studio that took inspiration from those stories and brought them to a whole new public and medium in the early 20th century. Disney Studios In the early years of Disney animated movies, there was a huge desire of wanting to legitimize the art form of animation. As it was the first foray into making feature films only using animation. It was not something that was considered like a safe or solid venture. So there was a lot riding on this first feature. When it came to the visual conception of the early movies of the studio... A lot of artistic references from European sources were taken, and Disney, the man 
not the corporation. Even though at this point, is there really a distinction to be made between the two of them? Wanted this endeavor to be taken seriously by the public and by Hollywood, and hired several established artists and illustrators as art directors and concept artists. This brought an air of credibility associated with the use of European art, but also of European artists. Which is something that has lasted throughout the years, especially with the animated adaptation of those typically European tales. The Golden Age of Illustration was a hugely important source of inspiration for the studio, as well as the movements of Art Nouveau and Art Deco that we have discussed earlier in this mini-season. Just to show the very deep influences this movement have had on culture, even if we are not necessarily aware of it and it is not immediately obvious. A lot of the art that was influencing the artists was the art of the romantics, which felt somehow appropriate to the subject of the story. It had this feeling of escape, magic and wonder as well as the nostalgia and idealization of rural European scenery, especially inspired by rural Germany, which can really be felt in the art of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937. This early vibe of a very nostalgic and cozy atmosphere, as Robin Allen says it in his essay, Disney's European sources. It's a way of using realism to promote nostalgia for a romanticized past. The early movies were full of layered visual references. It was a mixture of a scholarly artistic culture, as well as a lot of training for the in-house artists by giving them access to the books that were needed to achieve the art they wanted. For example, an inspiration was taken directly from a Ludwig Richter illustration in which the young prince means the princesses who is wearing a tailored dress. From the vine-covered tower to the outfits of the prince, a lot of elements were taken from specific art pieces, like this one by this German artist of the Golden Age and ended up almost directly into the movies. When it comes to the visual identity of these eponymous fairy tales, Disney created a whole new image of the fairy tale universe that will definitely shape the way we imagine fairy tales visually to this day. It is the new blueprint of art when it comes to fairy tales. The blue, red and yellow dress of Snow White, the silver gown of Cinderella, and the red hair of Ariel. Those details are so ingrained in the popular culture and it still influences the way we imagine those fairy tales, but also how we reimagine them. It is so strong that even when people draw those characters that have existed for centuries, it is from those iteration that they draw the most visual inspiration from. 
They are now the main way we even think about these characters, just to show how much they have truly overtaken the general perception of fairy tales and folklore. While there used to be a great amount of visual diversity in the illustrations and depictions of fairy tales and folk tales, this has indeed been codified into a very Disney-inspired art and aesthetic. When it comes to cinema, I, I admit I have my own personal opinions as a, about Disney as a company nowadays. While I can totally appreciate how much they did for the medium of animation and how they changed the landscape of the industry. Indeed, the fairy tale movies for children that were created by the studio are still iconic and an intrinsic part of the general pop culture. I mean, I grew up with them and I loved Snow White and I loved Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast and... Those are really movies that define the childhood of a lot of us and still continue to do. But this does not negate how this company now has a monopoly on (laughs) movies. It is absolutely absurd. It is absolutely absurd to think about. And the art of cinema has been commodified to a sort of mass-produced way of making movies. Just turn it out, remakes and reboots and sequels and prequels and remakes again and one after the other and really only banking on the attraction of nostalgia to make people watch and you know what, no matter how I feel about it, I guess it's worse and since it works, they will continue to do it because it is the easiest path in the end instead of, you know, making art. But, yeah. And I just love movies and I just love art and I just really wish we'd have... we'd have more care put into making movies And I think having the MCU and the Disney movies just drowning out the cultural landscape in cinema has been very detrimental. Anyway, this um, this was my rant. And this is not to say that cinema is totally dead or anything of the sort. I mean, just just yesterday my friend texted me to that I absolutely have to watch the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. Apparently it's a masterpiece of cinema and I'm incredibly excited because of how new and fresh it seems to be. And there's still hope and there's still artists and there's still cinema, but there's just that monopoly and it's not good, it's not good anyway. Rant over. I'm so sorry, guys. I just, I just get hyped in this subject. I love movies and I love art and I'm tired of seeing money and stu- executive decisions really being the end-all, be-all of it. And, you know, just bring back good movies. That's all I'm asking. Let's go back to the 
world of illustrations and fairy tales and the world of enchantment and post the golden age of illustration and post the early stage of Disney animated movies. But you know what, no matter what, those old illustrations of the golden age had a huge visual impact on the artists who came after them. Kinoto Wycraft is a Japanese and American artist who has illustrated many of the classic fairy tales, such as Snow White, The Beauty and the Beast, and Rapunzel, as well as various fantasy stories that are partly inspired by the by fairy tales, like the birth of Patricia and MacKillip, which, by the way, if you like, classic fantasy melded with fairy tales, this is for you. Tinnacle Whitecraft puts her own spin on things. Her art is golden and warm and truly magnificent. She is more inspired by the romantic nature of fairy tales, of the colors of Art Nouveau, of the Paraphalites' way of thinking about the Middle Ages. It's a way of painting fairy tales that is hugely inspired by art history while still making something new and incredibly beautiful. I appreciate deeply that even though she illustrates those fairy tales we aren't all familiar with, she tends to deviate from the Disney-inspired depictions and really create something that is hers. The art she creates often uses a golden color palette as if she spun the sun out of her pencil. She is one of those artists that brings out the magical feeling of the golden age in the modern fairy tales, while still making it attractive to a younger audience. The Girl from the Other Side by Nairabi is a recently completed manga series that is extremely inspired by fairy tales and folklore. The visual inspirations are drawn from an era of fantasy Europe, a bit inspired by the 19th century, but also from an idea of the medieval ages, just a time set somewhere in the past. There's no precise date, which gives it once again that eerie feeling of a tale being told. Once upon a time indeed, it uses the tropes and conventions of traditional folk tales, but also subverts them in such a unique way. Narabe has such a beautiful and lovely way to depict his story that is very simple, but also draws on artistic references from the past. It is such a marvelous manga from the story to the characters to the art that is simply mind-blowing to the incredibly tense and yet cozy atmosphere that is being set by the artist through the images. It is very mysterious and you can see the inspiration from the golden age of illustration, as it's drawn from the very childlike storybooks, such as the Arthur Rackham illustrations of, uh, of Alice in Wonderland. I think what really sticks to mind with me when thinking about how artists currently are inspired by the golden age of illustration, is this blending of the gothic and horror 
with the childlike innocence and fairy tales aesthetics, something that is truly inherent to the original fairy tales. Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro also uses those ways of communicating and those archetypes of the world of fairy tales in his movies. Pan's Labyrinth is absolutely magnificent and the movie I have probably watched when I was way too young to watch it. It is very atmospherical and intricate and is also a callback to the why folk tales and fairy tales were used before when they were a cautionary tale for children about the ways of the world but also about the horrors of the world. There is a fine line between horror and wonder, and Delto treads it finely in Pan's Labyrinth. The book Pan's Labyrinth inside the creation of a modern fairy tale acknowledges this inspiration and goes very much in depth in both the literary and cinematic and visual inspirations that helped him create the production design for this movie. For Del Toro, horror and monsters are an essential part of fairy tales, and as he says it, In fairy tales, monsters exist to be a manifestation of something that we need to understand, not only a problem we need to overcome, but also they need to represent much like angels represent the beautiful, pure, eternal side of the human spirit, monsters need to represent a more tangible, more mortal side of being human, aging, decay, darkness, and so forth. So for Del Toro, portraying fairy tales within the horror genre works as par for the course. And the golden age of illustration, of course, is a prominent influence on the way Pan's Labyrinth ultimately was treated artistically. Because of the references to classical fairy tale stories on a visual level. The era of the golden age is one that was extremely rich in art, magic and wonder. From child-friendly tales and delightful storybooks for little children, to the dark and dramatic illustration that accompanied Edgar Allan Poe's stories and the illustrations of Dracula in 1897. It is an era that I adore exploring and diving into, simply because of how wonderful the illustrations are, but also because of the complex stories behind it and how they can still matter today, and how, even without our knowledge, they are still a huge influence on the art that is created today, and our visual understanding of fairy tales and folklore. These illustrations live in a world of mystery and enchantment, and looking at them and the complex details and the stories they accompany and the and the meanings we give them 
Reminds me of my childhood, but also of complex stories that are built and constructed over the decades and over the centuries. This subject was one that was important for me to discuss and explore, and so I want to take the time to thank every single one of you for being part of this journey with me if you got there. It was an amazingly fun and extensive research project, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This is the end of this episode, but also of this mini-season. And this has been a wonderful time, but uh, it has now come to an end. I will take a break uh, for a few months after this episode just to figure out what next season will be and to give myself the time to write it. I do have a few ideas for the next season from subjects such as Mohammed Rassim, the Algerian ornamentalist art or the depictions of Ophelia in art and illustration and you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff to research, as well as the topic of forgeries in art. And so hopefully I will be back as soon as I can. But, um, but for now, it is time for me to leave you here. So as always, all the relevant images will be on our social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated and produced by yours truly, Naja. I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, Meili, Vilya Salah, Chonita Pechinuyan, Jar, Sam Hurt, Jimmy, Jenny, Jenny, Jamison Red, as well as Natalie. Thank you so much for making the work I do with this podcast possible. Today's recommendation of the day is Faster and Faster to Nowhere by Donna Summer. I'm just in a very distro mood lately. On this, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening, or night. And I hope to see you again very, very soon. Mm-hmm.